This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, I'll turn the mic over to two guest hosts for a conversation about mental health and technology with Dr. Elizabeth Barrett, licensed family marriage counselor, author, and Cal Poly professor. Cal Poly Technical Human students, Caitlin Travis and Katrina Lloyd, interview Dr. Barrett to discuss the modern implication of digital technologies for family and romantic dynamics. The episode delves into the complications of recent technology, including social media apps and the shift to virtual education due to COVID-19. In a virtual world, we lose connections and intimacy in the relationships that should be most important to us, and Dr. Barrett helps us brainstorm ways that we can reconnect in our coldly digital world. Dr. Elizabeth Barrett is a psychology and child development professor at the California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, where she lectures on the topics of counseling, family psychology, child abuse and neglect, and marriage and family therapy. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist of 20 years and a mental health coach specializing in personal growth, family life, and relationship issues. She has worked with the County of San Luis Obispo as a crisis in-home counselor for child abuse prevention programs, where she is focused on communication's importance in individual health and in the well-being of a family. Her expertise surrounding family psychology and the psychological impact of our evolving society is enhanced through her roles as a wife, mother, grandmother, sister, and daughter. She shares her concerns regarding our collective mental health and the direction of the helping professions on her weekly radio program on public radio, KCBX, a conversation with the reluctant therapist. And now here's Katrina and Caitlin's interview with Dr. Elizabeth Barrett. Hi, my name is Caitlin and today Katrina and I are delighted to be speaking with Elizabeth Barrett. Hi Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here with us today. We appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yes, us too. Um, I want to start out by saying that I love your radio show very much and think that you address such important and relevant topics that are so interesting to listen to. Everyone can relate to topics like family relationships, romantic relationships, and it's so important to be able to reflect on ourselves and the relationships in our own lives. One thing that stands out to me when I listen to your show is a part of your introduction, and I'll quote the intro that plays at the beginning of each show. It says, Elizabeth Barrett is a wife, mother, licensed marriage family therapist, educator, eavesdropper, and emotion worker. All of these roles and titles be familiar to most people, except for the term emotion worker. You clearly wear many different hats in terms of the roles you play. So why do you include emotion work as part of your identity in your introduction? Well, thank you for the nice introduction, Caitlin. I appreciate it. Also, grandmother is in there now as well, because I have a six-year-old and a one-year-old, two grandchildren. So the, so the emotion worker is really important because it is the balance of our lives. There are two things that we need to have a complete life. One is the resources. So that's an income, a roof over our head, you know, the basic necessities, food on the table. So the resource work is that of going out and, and accessing those things that keep the family running. And then the emotion worker, all of the unpaid labor, that's the caregiving, the nurturing, the creating a social circle, making sure doctor's appointments are made, making sure that everyone's uh, well-being is tended to. And the emotion work in our world is vastly undervalued, and yet it's essential 
for our mental health and well-being. And so I like to look at my role in my family as being the emotion worker. My husband does most of the resource work, and I feel like my contribution uh, has been to be that emotion worker, to keep it together for everyone and to make sure that we're all doing well. Yes, I think it's so important to make that distinction between resource workers and emotion workers. In your episode that you filmed for the International Women's Day radio show, you talked about the difference between the two and why it's important to you personally to identify with the role of emotion worker. In that episode, you also kind of touch on how the role of an emotion worker has changed because of the pandemic and the recent COVID-19 pandemic we've been experiencing. Could you talk a little about how being quarantined or being in the pandemic changes the way that we are able to be emotion workers and to have that part of our lives? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and also, you know, where the emotion work and resource work doesn't have to be binary either. It doesn't have to be one person doing one job and the other doing the other. That ideally we work in partnership and the more hands that are available to do both emotion and resource work, the better the family is. And, and that's really important in, in thinking about how we form families and intimate partnerships moving forward is that instead of having these specific roles that we all work together to make sure that our needs are met in however way that we create our family bonds. But during the pandemic, it became very evident uh, what those of us who work in the clinical world have known for a long time, that although women have made great strides getting into the workforce and being more highly educated and have access to you know, professional jobs, things have not changed much at home for those who live in a more traditional household, that three quarters of all of the childcare and housework basically still fall on the mother of the family. And so during the pandemic, there was really no safety net for these working moms who now were full-time caregivers, teachers, housekeepers, and trying to keep up with their work. And that unfortunately, in, in much to the disappointment of, of researchers, that there weren't as many men who were stepping up to be more partnered during the pandemic, that a lot more of the work really fell on women and was much more crushing. Right. I I'd completely agree. And I, I could see, see that completely. And I think it's also an important thing to realize that some of the struggles that people were experiencing during the pandemic are constant struggles for, for families with low-income households, for people, like you said, who have to take on both roles of the emotion worker and the resource worker, who people who have to choose which role they want to invest more more time and energy into. And during hard times and for low-income families, that choice is pretty much taken away because they have to put food on the table, right? They have to make money and be that resource worker. And, and then that emotion work gets lost. And what do you think can happen like when that is not properly like addressed and people aren't receiving the emotional work they need. Well, and we see that in the numbers of people who've been struggling with their mental health throughout the pandemic. I mean, the I don't have a statistic in front of me, but people who had never identified themselves as feeling anxious or suffering from depression were starting to come out and say, wow, <laughs> if this is what depression or anxiety feels like, I definitely know what it is now. You know, So we're seeing not only an activation of these struggles for people who tend to lean towards anxiety and depression, but we're seeing people who've been activated and symptomatic now who never struggled before. And then we recognized how tender our safety net is, that there was really no backup for families. Years and years ago, 
we had more of a collectivistic or an, an extended or generational family systems. And so if there was a crisis of some kind, you had grandparents or aunts or uncles or cousins, you know, to kind of step in, help out, everyone can come together and make sure there was food on the table. But we've become so isolated and so individualistic that the pandemic really highlighted how isolated and alienated people are in their lives, especially if they're stuck at home. And so naturally, when we're separated from community and services and support systems, that challenges our mental health in ways that we're just starting to really recognize outside of what we see in, in normal day-to-day -day life. But under the pressures of something like the pandemic, we saw people starting to feel crushed and having no outlets for that. And, and I want to side note that also is that it's not really about people needing more counseling. You know, that that's not really what we were seeing. I mean, that's that was something that came out of the pandemic. We need more therapists. But the reality is having more therapists wouldn't have solved the crisis that we had because it's the social systems that failed, not the people. People did not become mentally ill because they couldn't handle the pandemic. People became mentally ill because there were no systems to support their lives. And that's really an important thing to pay attention to. Wow, that's that's a really interesting perspective I've I've never thought about before. It was almost like the pandemic kind of pointed out something that that needed to be pointed out that we're we're really lacking these these connections and on that topic you discuss in your half post article throughout and throughout several of your podcast episodes the kind of lack of purpose meaning and connection that characterizes this millennial generation me and Caitlin's generation and it's commonly thought you know that these these people are some of the most connected 20 to 30 year olds through Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and so on. And we're able to find people who share our interests and our passions and connect to these people almost effortlessly. However, throughout this conversation and throughout your article, it seems like you feel like this might not really be the case, that instead, this is kind of a facade that's perpetuated by society's very narrow definition of success. A definition of success that, and I'm going to quote you here from your article, that is comparable to a conveyor belt of childhood, overscheduled, overstressed, and so busy checking off life experience boxes. And I know you said earlier you didn't have a statistic, but in your article, you cite the CDC and the NMHA and that 12 to 18% of college students are currently being treated for a psychological disorder and suicide rates in adolescents have tripled over the last 60 years, making suicide the second leading cause of death for this generation. And so I just want to ask you, I mean, you know, me and Caitlin both know throughout our, our age group in this millennium generation, it, it feels like people are aware of these issues and it's just still not really being dealt with. And I wanted to ask you what psychological and sociological impacts does social media impart upon this generation and, and the, the rates that we're seeing here? Well, that's a lot. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to unpack it, but then you can re-ask the questions if I don't go where you'd like. So what I say to my classes almost every day is that nothing in life is all good or all bad. Nothing. So we have to be able to look at whatever issue is facing us from, from all sides, from all perspectives. And, and also you know, to understand that when it comes to psychology and talking about psychological issues, the first answer to every question is it depends. Right? So it depends on the individual, how social media impacts them. 
I just got done reading a research study about the impact of social media, and they're finding that young people who are connected to a community, they have strong friendship groups, are not as influenced by the time they spend on social media as those who are not connected to in-person groups. They become uh, more connected to their social media, which has a higher rate of anxiety and depression. It's really interesting because that's what people want to know. Is social media harming us or creating our mental health issues? So that's part of it. There's great things with social media. If you're a young LGBTQ identifying person in Mississippi, your social media contacts with like-minded individuals can be life-saving. But if you're someone who has body image issues, feels very, fairly isolated and are following a lot of influencers that you know have unrealistic body images that they're showing, then social media can be devastating especially if then in your social group, they also are caught up in body dysmorphia and body loathing and body shaming. So it, it depends on where you are in the whole picture of your life. What does your day-to-day -day look like? Is social media uh, just a piece of it or is it where you spend seven or eight hours a day? And how do you connect to the world outside of your screen? I think that's those are some pieces that are really important and are going to determine whether or not social media is impacting our mental health and well-being. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. It seems like you feel like there is kind of a relationship between the type of person you are mm -hmm. and your ability to connect with people, how you want to go about that and the, and the effects that social media is going to have on you. Yes. And also where you live, where, what's your geography, you know, where, where are you landing and, and partaking in social media and what is your day-to-day -day look like? What is your family structure? How much time do you spend interacting with your parents? You know, how much time do you spend interacting with the best friend? What kind of activities are you engaged in? Do you have connection to a religious organization or a sports team? At the end of the day, and it, and it also aligns very much with the suicidal ideation piece, is that when people do not feel connected to something greater than themselves, their mental health falters across the board. And so if you want to line up things like social media use, suicidal ideation, drug and alcohol use, eating disorders, cutting across the board, if you want to look at the things that ail us and our mental well-being, anxiety and depression, that people who have something that they can connect to, service, a job, I mentioned a religious organization, an elderly person they care for, a pet that they take care of, a group that they meet with that expects them to show up. People who are connected in meaningful ways to their community have a much more solid foundation and are much less likely to find themselves feeling suicidal or anxious or depressed. Yeah. I, I mean, I know that one of the most important takeaways from your article is this use of service as a solution to this problem of dissociation while also, you know, providing an opportunity to improve life for many others. And I, I just wanted to make sure that we discuss this important takeaway. And I wanted to give you a chance to explain this train of thought and, you know, what, what possible mental health benefits or connections can be made through this service as a solution. Oh, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, it probably is my my passion piece about eight years ago i got involved in the franklin project which was started by general stanley mccrystal in hopes that we could make national service a cultural expectation for all young people 18 to 28 
and he had this 10-year plan. And along the way, they combined with two or three other organizations that were trying to make service part of the national conversation. It actually was part of the platform for some of the Democratic candidates in the last election. This idea that if we could get young people to come together to give a year of service to a nonprofit in a community somewhere in the United States, um, they would help this community, this nonprofit, but it would also help them to connect with other people in their cohort around the same age and build these coalitions of people, young people who were networking, getting to know each other, uh, building relationships, doing something that made them feel part of an important opportunity. And if we could unite a whole generation through service and they all knew each other, that it would help us moving forward to tackle some of the greater issues facing the country. And it's interesting about this idea of national service because George Washington actually said that unless we find a way to unite all of the various uh, nationalities and religions and people who are coming to the United States, we're going to be very disparate. We're going to have all these small factions and we won't be one United States. And so part of the idea of service is to connect not just to this community-based nonprofit, but which is to also connect young people to each other all across the country. And then the beauty of doing service, and these are organizations like AmeriCorps, Teach for America, or City Year, or Faith-Based Service Years. There's 60,000 different service years available. What makes them unique is that they defer your student loans for a year. You get paid for your work with this nonprofit. It's very small income, but they do pay you for your work. You work with a cohort of other young people who are also doing service. And then at the end of your service year, you are given a five to $8,000 education stipend to put towards other educational opportunities. So it's this well-rounded benefit for all the people involved. And so they've morphed this project into what is now called serviceyear.org, serviceyr.org. And as I said, there's 60,000 different examples of service years, and it's very easy to get on and look for where you'd like to live in the country, find a service year and apply. And it's life-changing. In the 10 years I've been sending students out on service years, I've never had a student come back and say, I wish I hadn't done that. But I've had many students write to me and say, why did I go straight to grad school? I'm miserable. Yeah, I personally um, first heard the service year spiel when I took family psychology with Professor Barrett. And um, I, I am strongly considering a service year as my plan after I graduate next winter. And I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to take family psychology and, and be able to to hear that lecture and be able to learn about service years. That's a really cool thing that Professor Barrett does is that in her lectures and in her classes, she also advocates for students to take service years. And I think it's really important and an important thing to keep in mind rather than rushing on the conveyor belt toward whatever plan we're supposed to be going to. <laughs> I wanted to ask a question also related to your family site class and just how you teach as a professor. And in the family site class, this was a, cl- a class that I love taking. It probably has been one of my favorite classes at Cal Poly. And I liked it so much because we talked about all things related to like family and life and relationships. We also talk about puberty and growing up from birth to death, all the different phases of life. And we talk about sex and, and have these conversations that are usually considered uncomfortable by a lot of people. And I feel like sex ed has a pretty bad rap for being an uncomfortable and difficult topic, but I don't know anyone that has taken 
family psych and, and come out of it feeling uncomfortable or less educated about sex education. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about sex education and how you handle it and how you go about that concept in your class and why do you think it's important? Well, I think it's important because our intimate relationships are the foundation of our mental health and well-being. And marriages or long-term committed relationships, part of what keeps them strong is that intimate connection, just on a real basic biological level that when we have sex with someone, um, we release oxytocin and vasopressin, which are bonding hormones, which makes us feel close and tender to the person that we're being intimate with. So just for a bonding aspect of it, sex is so essential to long-term committed relationships, healthy relationships. And yet we don't teach anyone about it. And couples get married and somehow we expect that they're magically going to understand how to be comfortable and communicate and be sexual and feel comfortable. And so when couples end up in counseling, one of the first things that I ask my couples, I don't know if other therapists do, is when was the last time you had sex? And generally the first thing that goes in a relationship is they've stopped having sex and then the communication falters and the trust falters. So I teach very specific sex ed in my family psych classes because for relationships and families to thrive, the heart of that relationship, the couple really needs to feel good about what they're doing. And if no one's going to teach you how to do it, then how are you expected to thrive? And then there's a whole other piece of it as well, is that I think we send young people off to college or we launch them into the world wherever they end up going, but let's say specifically college campuses. And we put this huge emphasis on consent and making sure the students understand what consent is and that they have consent and to keep asking for, for consent. But it became apparent to me very quickly that very few of my students knew anything about sex or sexuality or pleasure. And so how could we expect them to consent to something that they really didn't know what it was or how it worked or how to get there? And so I thought it'd be much more impactful if we could teach young people about pleasure and their bodies and the joy of intimacy and make sex and sexuality something kind of a beautiful part of relationships to counter the story that is taught, which is about porn and hookup sex and blackout drinking and fumbling at night and, you know, people feeling disappointed and ashamed and the idea of sexual assaults on campus and the rate of sexual assaults happening, that if we could change the narrative that young people were taught about sex and sexuality in a healthy way, it would make consent make sense, but it would also, I think, reduce the amount of shame-based, unfulfilling, damaging sexual interactions on campus. So those are the two reasons why I focus on it in my class. Yeah, I think that is so important, and especially at the college level where people are living on their own for the first time and, and making these individual decisions. I feel like it's so important to be educated about something that is so common and so under-talked about. And then also just relating it back to the pandemic and just our, our general just like loss of closeness and intimacy. I feel like it's such an important thing to be able to, to talk about closeness and relationships and family relationships and be able to verbalize those kind of feelings at a time where we are so disconnected. Well, and what's interesting is that there's so there's almost shame around needing other people. I, and I am not quite sure how we got here, but there's almost people feel embarrassed to say, I want to be in a relationship or I'd like to get married or I want to be close to other people. You know, the whole hookup campus culture is about 
being isolated and independent and not caring and not getting involved and not saying that I care. And I don't know how that became a value for this generation, that I don't need anyone else, that I am fine on my own. And we can see what, what the result has been, that this, this generation, a lot of the millennials, a lot of the Zs coming up are really struggling emotionally because they just have themselves and they don't know how to connect and reach out and feel like they belong because they've been taught for whatever reason that being an individual is more important than being connected. Yes, absolutely. I, I that's a, a perfect way to relate to the next question I was going to talk about just in terms of partnership and, and how you said that we are such an individualistic society right now, but there are so many benefits that come from having another person and being in a partnership and someone who you've had on your radio show before who stresses this idea is Dr. Um, Rianne Eisler, who you've mentioned is one of your role models and you agree with a lot of her ideas. Um, she's a system scientist and author, and she's also the president of the Center for Partnership Studies. On the episode where you interviewed her, you discussed ways that we can create a more equitable, sustainable, and less violent world based, based on partnership rather than domination. By establishing a partnership system, we can be more sustainable and get away from the stresses of violence and be a society based on love and care and empathy. Would you care to talk a little bit more about Dr. Eisler's ideas about partnership? I love Dr. Eisler. And I do recommend that people read Chalice and the Blade, which is her first book, and, and to look into her work with the caring economy and her system for partnership studies. One of the things I, I will mention is that she has looked at our entire social system and found that how we rate or how we value the gross domestic product in our country hurts our overall wealth and well-being as, as a country and as individuals. Because currently our GDP is based on what we produce and sell, you know, our products and kind of the stripping of our resources, that the wealth of our country is based on what we produce and what we consume. But she says that we're missing an entire part of the wealth of our country, and that is all of the work that is done that is go that goes unpaid for. All of the caregiving work, teaching, um, tending to children, tending to the elderly, billions of dollars of underpaid and sometimes not paid labor should be counted into our economic structure. And if we were to add that value into our economic structure, it would do two things. It would elevate the status of those jobs so that more people would want to do the work of caregiving. And it would also increase the salaries for these jobs because it would have higher status in our society. And a lot of research has been done in other countries that elevate the status of women in caregiving and children into their economy and into how they note the, their strength as a nation and found that countries that have a higher value on women and children are more peaceful and more economically vibrant than countries uh, other than countries that do not. So there's this, this value of the work that we call the feminine or the emotion work that our country ignores. And as a result, we have a whole segment of our population that lives in poverty because they don't have access to good resources or they're doing work that is considered valuable but not recognized or paid for what the value is in our country. I think that's such an interesting way to think about resource work and emotion work too, to compare the two is like, if you have someone who is putting 
so like all of their time and energy into emotion work, it's probably as much of, if not more time and energy as someone who's putting their time and energy into resource work. But financially, the the money you get from resource work is obviously so much more than you get from emotion work. So mm-hmm. I have considered that that is that that's a huge divide between the two, and that if we had more more concern for emotion work and valued it higher as a society, we would probably be doing so much better. I wanted to ask Elizabeth if if you think we're we're moving in a productive direction in terms of giving that higher value to emotion work. I, I for one, feel like we are, we must be. That it seems like people are way more aware of, of their mental health and its importance and also the importance of care and connection. I just wanted to see your input on that. I have great hope for the future because I do think that we're in a really interesting time. The pandemic in some ways has been wonderfully illuminating uh, to the ways that things weren't working well for people and for their mental health and for, you know, the expectations that we work 60, 70 hours a week. I mean, that it really is going to do us a service in the long run. Unfortunately, it'll do us a service in the long run for those that are privileged and, and have the opportunity to make choices of how they want to live and work. That's another story. But I think that we do have more awareness of partnership, that how people are creating relationships and choosing to marry or cohabitate or build their family structures is becoming much more creative, much more sustainable. Those are great things. I think part of our struggle is going to be that we still, as a society, pursue what looks like a more masculine, patriarchal lens. So let me try to explain that that we've inspired or tried to empower women, young women to go to college and to pursue a career and to get into a profession and to build their life around that career that they are passionate about. And that sounds great on paper, but the problem is you now have pushed all of these workers into that same category that they were fighting against, which is the patriarchy, which does not value family, which does not value care work, which does not value taking care of children. All of a sudden now, whoever, you know, who's going to raise the kids? We're trying to shove all the kids into childcare. We don't have adequate childcare resources. You know, instead of creating a society that's more partner-based, where we don't put such an emphasis on career and work and more emphasis on family and nurturing and child-rearing and that our money that we make kind of supports our families and not become our identity, we're, we're, we've boxed ourselves into this corner where everyone is trying to find meaning in their life around their work. And when it doesn't pan out or they don't find meaning in their life for their work, we don't have a lot of options. I don't know if that makes sense. And you have, just as a weird side note, women now have the same risk of heart disease and high blood pressure and diabetes as men do because they have entered into this workforce, which is very masculine in its, in its setup which is you know, about productivity and putting in your hours and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. It is not feminine-based at all. And so women now, instead of creating more balanced uh, life, they've just mirrored what was the patriarchy that they were fighting against before. And we haven't really, in all honesty, addressed the issues that were a problem prior to the second wave of feminism, which is how do we care for a family? And still get to pursue things that we're interested in. So I don't know if we've come very far, to be honest. Right. Yeah. And I was just going to say, like you mentioned 
um, about the second wave of feminism. And you were talking in your recent International Women's Day uh, radio show about how we really have been recently regressing in terms of women's rights and that women are being even more sexualized and objectified, especially in media and in advertisements. And even though it seems like we've made all these great strides in terms of gender equality and, and women's rights, we have actually seen, I, I can't remember exactly what the statistic was, but it was like a 20% increase in advertisements of women sexualized in the last something years. Why do you think this is happening? Why are we almost regressing in this way. I know it's obviously odds are against us in the patriarchal society that we're in, but why do you think this is happening? So I'm going to tell you from a very cynical place, but I always want to preface it by saying nothing is all bad or all good. And I, and I do have high hopes, but my very cynical self sees that the second wave of feminism was a boon to the patriarchy. It was a boon to corporations because they were able to now get another whole 50% of our population into the workforce, you know, without really having to change anything at all. They didn't really, I mean, there's few companies that do, but overall companies are not offering childcare services on premises or at all. They're not giving women flexible or, or men giving anyone flexible work situations. They're not making sure that people have paid parental leave. You know, overall, again, there's a few outlier companies that do, but the majority of people who are in the workforce do not have protections that are helping them to survive and thrive as a family. They just are consumers. You know, they're more worker bees. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece is that when people are told that something has been solved, right, the feminist movement won, women are at work, women can go to college and get scholarships, our cultural narrative is this kind of beating of the chest of look at us, we've elevated women and the status of opportunities. And so if you beat your chest loud enough, people don't notice or pay attention to all the ways that women are getting subjugated. Right, that it's a 45% increase in advertisements that exploit women's bodies to sell products. If you look at products like Dolce Gabbana, one of their, I can't if it's perfume or something they're selling, was a woman laying on the ground with a man holding her down and three other men watching. You know, that's, that's a depiction of gang rape. And you see women who are disembodied, you know, there's a naked body with a, a liquor bottle in front of them. These ads have become completely almost invisible to anyone recognizing how damaging they are because we are seeing them so constantly that this unconscious reminder is women are just bodies, women are just bodies, which allows, again, rape culture and violence against women to, to go almost unresolved because we have this conflicting story on one end, women are equals in the boardroom as long as they're willing to work 40 hours, but at the same time, they're just disembodied objects for selling things. And then the, the last you know, piece for women is that those who are passing laws in our country that impact freedoms for women are passing laws that are completely denying women access to health care, reproductive health care, uh, the state of Oklahoma just outright banned access to abortions, I think, this week, now mirroring the same law that Texas passed. And so these efforts to legislate and control women are happening at more alarming rates than they were prior to the second wave of feminism. And yet, because women have access to STEM educations, that somehow is supposed to overcome all of the backlash and, and pushback that women are experiencing in places that no one talks about. I think that is so concerning. It and should such be. A, 
interesting way to think about the the second wave of feminism not as a step forward for women but as a almost an act you know of of the patriarchal society where it's like it seems like we're getting all these rights but actually you're being thrown into a workplace that isn't meant for women and then and then at the same time you're still being sexualized and and seeming like you're being empowered but really they're just quietly continuing to objectify women in the background because like you said everyone's convinced that we've won and the battle doesn't need to be fought anymore. Well, and it's, and it's challenging also because to speak out against what's happening in some ways can sound anti-feminist. It's right. So it's hard to talk about because like, what are you trying to make women go back and be at home and be full-time caregivers? Are you trying to get women out of the workplace, you know, or if you, if you question, you know, women's, you know, decisions or choices, it, it in some ways then is another way that we're pushing women backwards. So how do we talk about it? And that's where, again, the patriarch or the corporate society that we live in continues to win because you can't address the issue if people feel offended immediately. And I think that's the challenge. And and just also, you know, when you have a lot of people working in that system, it's very, it feels I don't know what the word I want to use is. If you're someone who came through college and went right into academics or you went right into the workforce and you've been putting in your 60, 70 hours a week and you were told this is the way to go and you're going to have kids and put them in childcare and they're going to be fine and you're exhausted and your marriage is failing and you're going, it must be me that's failing. But then no one ever steps back and goes, maybe it was a bad plan. Maybe this idea that women could have it all and do all these things was the bad plan. And instead, we're telling women they're just not up to the challenge. Again, the society continues to benefit from it. But all of those women who went to work and, and bought into the system, they're not going to say, I think I made a mistake, because then that, then that challenges the decisions that they've made and the life that they're living And so it's a really, really complex issue to address because so many people feel threatened when asked to look at whether or not what we're doing is working or not. Absolutely. And that is so hard, too, for like women just in general to to be told, like, we're strong, we can do all this, have a family, have a job, like have like whatever, like do it all. But realistically, that's a lot. It's, It's a lot of pressure on on anybody, man or woman. And I feel like that's just not a fair expectation at this point. Well, let's flip it to the men. Let's make sure we talk about the men too, because you know, there was a big men's movement right around the same time as the second wave of feminism, and it was completely shot down. And men were saying, I want to be seen as more than a success object, which is a great saying. You know, they It's like for men, they have a very limited role as how they can be defined as successful in our country. You know, 8% of the stay-at-home parents today are, are men. And they really struggle with an identity of feeling accepted in a society that says, why aren't you out working? Why are you at home with your kids? You know, if women feel pressure uh, when they stay home with their children, imagine how it is for men to make that choice, that decision. Even if they feel it's in the best interest of their family, there's so much blowback on men that you only have one narrow definition of success, and that's how much money you make. So it, it's, a, it's a cultural issue. It's not just a women's issue. It's a societal issue. Right. And I feel like that especially relates back to the partnership-based society where that might, might be a better system because in that case, men can take can do that emotion work and resource work and can do both and, and both people in the relationship are, are contributing equally. So I feel like that partnership domain is, is probably a, a good solution for that kind of thing as well. Well, and also the biggest 
challenge is the corporations again, who don't feel like they have to change at all to accommodate anyone. And as long as people are hungry and need work, then they don't have to change. And, and another side note, what's interesting is before the turn of the 20th century, you know, when we were first settling the 20 years where they're settling this country and for years before that, men and women were very partnered in many ways because they lived a more agricultural based society. We lived in a more agricultural based society. And so men and women worked on the farm or worked the land. They both were tending to the children. Children were working you know, side by side with their parents and learning how to, to run the farm. Or if they had a family business in the city, the kids worked with the parents, the parents worked together. It really wasn't until the dawning of the industrial revolution uh, where we started to build factories and then men were going off to work and women were left home with the kids that we really kind of saw this the shift in, in these you know roles of stay-at-home parent and working parent. Right. I completely agree. I think that working maybe back towards that partnership system is going to be beneficial if we could get there somehow. Um, I wanted to maybe wrap up and just wanted to say thank you, Professor Barrett, for joining us again today and answering our questions. I really enjoyed talking about everything with you. Is there any final thoughts or anything you'd like to add? I think that one of the dangers that we're in right now is that there's too much information flowing into everyone's lives too quickly. And I think that that's the biggest challenge that we face moving forward is finding a way to not overwhelm ourselves with too much news, too much information, too many memes, too much you know knowledge about things that are happening across the world that don't impact our lives. You know, our psyches were never meant to contain this much information. And so we see this increased level of mental health challenges or anxiety or depression or overwhelm or hopelessness because people are trying to absorb all of the tragedies that are happening everywhere in the world. And before we had access to all this information, you might have known what happened you know, in your neighborhood or in your town or in your community. And so there was time for your psyche to rest between tragedies or times that you felt like you needed to get activated or you needed to help other people, that there would be times that you would rest and enjoy. And then there were times of crisis where people would come together and help each other out. But now it's this constant flow of information that feels dire and overwhelming, and it causes us to shut down, to feel like we can't move forward or make decisions or feel engaged or feel involved. And I think that's detrimental to helping us move forward in a healthy way. And so I just would like to encourage people to develop a 15-minute educated citizen habit you know, that if we could limit the amount of time we spend engaging in all of the worldly news to 15 minutes a day, and then spend the rest of our day enjoying being outside, talking to friends, doing crafts and being creative, reading things that are stimulating, you know, enjoying making a meal, spend an hour creating a meal, because the time you put into cooking a good meal soothes your soul and the energy that comes from that nutrition is good for your mental health. But we really only need 15 minutes of engagement outside of our world to stay informed and, and to be balanced and not feel overwhelmed. I, I wanna I wanna thank you for saying that. That was that was a topic I definitely wanted to touch on was the balance between taking care of one's mental health but also being educated and being a good citizen. And so I think that that is some really great advice to end on. And I just wanted to say thank you again for joining us. 
Professor Barrett, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Kirchhoff. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here for us. It means a lot. Thank you. And thank you to our guest hosts, Caitlin Travis and Katrina Loy, and to our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Barrett. I'll see you next week.